It has been said, and rightly so, that bitterness is like pouring acid on yourself and waiting for the other person to hurt. I'm sure you have seen that sad reality in the life of someone around you. Maybe you've even experienced it in your own life. If you haven't, then I know you've seen it in a friend or family member or someone you know. You've seen someone who, maybe as a result of a hurt, is bitter. And his bitterness is destroying him, even though he or she wants the bitterness to destroy the other person. That is a reminder to us that God often tells us things for our own good. What I mean is, when God tells us to do something, or not to do something in his word, it's not just arbitrary. Many times it's for our own benefit. This is the exact opposite of what Satan tells us. If you remember the way he tempted Eve in the garden, he did so by questioning God's goodness. He implied that God was simply being selfish, or God was being some kind of cosmic killjoy and depriving her, holding back from her something that was good. Satan has destroyed billions of people ever since that time with that same lie. Satan wants us to believe that the commands of God, the words of God, are intended to to deprive us and make us slaves of some kind. The truth is the commands of God are for our good and they protect us from being enslaved to so many things that are extremely destructive in life. For example, one of God's commandments in Scripture is the importance of forgiving others. Jesus even taught us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Why does the Lord call on us to forgive others? Well, there are a number of answers to that question, but one of them is because when we don't forgive others, it has the potential to destroy us. Self-destructive bitterness is often the result of a lack of forgiveness. It's no wonder that Jesus addressed this issue repeatedly in his ministry and his teaching. He does so in our text this morning. Please turn with me in your Bible to the 11th chapter of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 11. As we continue our way through Mark's gospel in the 11th chapter, we come this morning to two verses. It's a short text because the verses are, in a sense, composed of one theme, And so we want to consider verses 25 and 26. Please follow along as I read those verses for us. Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said, Jesus taught, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive. Forgive your trespasses. There is a common teaching within Christianity today that is continuing to grow in popularity. 
this, te- this teaching isn't something that is growing out there somewhere in Christianity. It's something that is very popular within conservative circles of Christianity like ours. Specifically, I'm referring to the teaching that says, forgiveness of others is always based on confession and repentance. You see, what some teachers do is they point out the many passages in the Bible where forgiveness of others is based on confession and repentance. Then they draw the conclusion that it is always based on confession and repentance. And they will often say something like this. How can you extend forgiveness to someone who has never asked for it? How can you extend forgiveness to someone who doesn't even acknowledge that he or she has done wrong? True forgiveness can only be granted when the person who has wronged you confesses and repents. That's usually how the teaching goes. I've heard that taught, stated many times. Those who teach that view fail to realize that the Bible actually describes two kinds of or two types of forgiveness. The Bible talks about relational forgiveness, and the Bible talks about positional forgiveness. Now, it doesn't use those terms, just like the Bible doesn't use the term Trinity, but I don't know of any Bible-believing Christian who would deny the doctrine of the Trinity, yet the word is never found in the Bible. In the same way, the Bible doesn't use the term relational forgiveness or positional forgiveness, but Scripture clearly presents those two concepts. When it comes to forgiveness, there are two kinds. There is relational forgiveness, and there is positional forgiveness. Or maybe you prefer the terms transactional forgiveness and unconditional forgiveness. You see, there is a sense in which relational or transactional forgiveness of others is based upon confession and repentance. In other words, the Bible does teach transactional forgiveness or relational forgiveness. For example, in Luke 17, 3 and 4, Jesus said this, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. That is an example of relational or transactional forgiveness. Jesus talks about the person who sinned against you repenting and desiring forgiveness, coming to you to seek forgiveness. When that happens, we should be quick to forgive and resume the relationship without hindrance or without barrier. But what about scenarios when the person doesn't repent. Did Jesus mean to imply in those verses that if a person doesn't repent, then we have the right to withhold forgiveness? We have the right to harbor resentment? We have the right to embrace bitterness? No, the the text here in Mark 11 makes it clear that Jesus would not propose such a perspective. The kind of forgiveness that Jesus describes here in Mark 11 says nothing about the other person repenting, nothing about the other person desiring forgiveness, nothing about the other person 
seeking forgiveness. This is not transactional forgiveness. This is unconditional forgiveness. Or, to say it another way, this is positional forgiveness. This is forgiveness granted even when the other person doesn't repent and seek forgiveness. This is the kind of forgiveness Jesus spoke of and granted in Luke 23, 34 when he was being crucified and as he was hanging there on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they were doing. Those who were crucifying Jesus did not ask for forgiveness. They did not repent on the spot and seek forgiveness. They had not repented of what they were doing, yet Jesus expressed forgiveness. He called on the Father to grant them forgiveness. That wasn't relational forgiveness. Jesus wasn't forgiving them in the sense of restoring a relationship with them because they had no relationship with him. They were killing him, murdering him, crucifying him. That wasn't transactional forgiveness. It was positional or unconditional forgiveness. It is forgiveness that is granted in the sense of not holding it against the other person and in the the sense of letting go of it in your heart. That is the kind of forgiveness Jesus is describing here in our text in Mark 11. These two verses of Mark chapter 11 stand alone as a lesson by themselves But that doesn't mean that they are unrelated or unconnected to the context. You may remember that in the previous verse, verse 24, Jesus mentioned prayer. Jesus has been talking about prayer, and that prompted him to give this important exhortation in relation to prayer. He says in verse 25, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone... Forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. The reason why Jesus said, whenever you stand praying, is because that was the typical or normal posture for prayer for Jewish people. That was just the typical or normal posture that they embraced while they prayed. Most cultures have some kind of typical posture for prayer. For us here in America, it is to bow the head. That's very common in our culture. As we pray, we often will bow our heads. Jewish people stood when they prayed. There were times when they would kneel, as in the case of Daniel, and there were times when they would lie face down on the ground. But those were usually used during times of great distress or deep emotion. The normal posture of prayer was to stand. So what that means is this. What that tells us is this. Here in verse 25, Jesus is saying that a forgiving heart and a forgiving attitude should simply be the norm. It just should be part and parcel of proper praying. When you pray, anytime you pray, this should be your attitude. Whenever you pray, do so with a heart of forgiveness. In fact, to emphasize how wide of a scope this should be, I want you to notice that Jesus used the words anything 
and anyone. That's all-inclusive. He is saying if there is anyone, believer or unbeliever, if there is anyone who has done something that you don't like or anyone who has done something that has hurt you, anyone who has done something that has offended you or grieved you, forgive and let it go. Don't hold on to it. Don't chew on it and think about it and ruminate on it. Forgive and let it go. This is something that is continually emphasized in the pages of the New Testament. For example, turn over with me to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4. Past Acts and Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. The, no, notice the last two verses in the chapter. The Apostle Paul, following the lead or the example of Jesus, had this to say, verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Notice that the specific sins listed in verse 31 are all related to people, not God. Verse 31 is talking about how we relate to other people. How we relate to others. And notice that it starts from the inside and works out. Because the first specific mentioned is bitterness. Bitterness speaks of an unforgiving spirit that resents and holds grudges against others. The saddest part about bitterness may be that the fact that it only hurts the individual holding it, not the one at whom it is directed. Bitterness is self-destructive. It's the resentful spirit that refuses reconciliation. The resentful spirit that refuses any compassion toward the other person. It is a dreaded cancer. A cancer of the soul. The next word here in verse 31 is wrath. Wrath speaks of a settled anger toward others, while the next word in this list, anger, speaks of not something that's settled, but something that blazes forth in actions or it comes out in words. Again, I remind you, Paul is starting deep to the inside with bitterness, and then he's working out bitterness, wrath, Anger. And that leads to the next word in verse 31, translated in my particular version, clamor. I think most of your English translations will use the phrase loud arguing. It speaks of yelling at one another, hollering at one another, screaming at one another in loud argumentative anger. And that in turn leads to the final specific here in verse 31, where he says, and put away evil speaking. More literally translated, slanderous put-downs. You see, when you're angry with people, when you have bitterness, wrath, anger, it's very easy to, if you don't do what the previous verse 
forbids us to do, I mean the previous word forbids us to do, loud arguing, then, then if you don't give into that, the tendency is to slip into the practice of putting people down by using slanderous comments. And the Holy Spirit is saying here through the Apostle Paul, these things should not characterize our lives as Christians. Instead, verse 32, instead of that, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. These three virtues here in verse 32, kindness, tender-heartedness, and forgiveness, start broad and then get very specific. Kindness is a broad term. It is basically love in practical action. Tenderheartedness, the next word, refers more specifically to inner emotions of affection. It's a word that is used only one other time in all the New Testament in 1 Peter 3.8. It's a very unique word, tenderheartedness. And then the most specific virtue in this verse is forgiveness. The obstacle of being kind and tenderhearted is often a lack of forgiveness. Now at this point in the message, maybe you're thinking to yourself or maybe you're even almost muttering under your breath, yeah, Brian, but, but if you only knew what he did to me or if you only knew what she said about me, they deserve any bitterness I have toward them. Beloved, it's very important for us to understand something. Please hear this. We don't act that way toward people because they deserve it. That's what we convince ourselves of. No, we act that way because we are sinful. We tend to think, well, I'm acting this way because they deserve it. No, you're acting that way because you're sinful. I act this way because I'm sinful. Now, I'm not denying that people can hurt us or grieve us deeply, but they don't control our response. We control our response. If anyone ever had reason to be resentful, God does toward us. He has reason to be resentful toward us, but the end of the verse says, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. What a contradiction it is when Christians, those who have been forgiven by God through faith in Jesus Christ, what a contradiction when when Christians are bitter, resentful, unkind, and unforgiving. That's why Jesus said what he did in our text in Mark chapter 11. Now let's go back there to that text in Mark 11. So Jesus says, as he was teaching on the subject of prayer, Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Now what does that mean? Does this mean that that if we as believers have an unforgiving heart, then our Father God is going to rescind his forgiveness that was granted in Christ and we are going to end up in hell? Is that what this is saying? No, it doesn't mean that. But what it is saying is serious. Which is why Jesus explains further in the next verse. Verse 26, he says, But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now what is this saying? 
I thought all of our sins were forgiven the very moment we embraced Christ. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Yes, it is. It is. The Bible clearly teaches, undeniably teaches, that the moment you receive Christ, all your sins are forgiven. So what is Jesus talking about here? Let's let him answer the question by looking at a couple of his own explanations in Matthew's gospel. So go with me from Mark, back one book to the gospel of Matthew. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Notice what Jesus said beginning in verse 9. Jesus said, in this manner, therefore pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It is clear from the parallel passage in Luke 11 that Jesus is referring to spiritual debts when he uses that word here. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The wording of this phrase could be confusing to you if you take this to mean that we somehow are the pattern of forgiveness. That is not what Jesus is saying here. We are not the pattern of forgiveness. He is not saying that we ask God to follow our pattern of forgiveness. But what he is saying is that it is a contradiction to ask God to forgive us of our mistakes and our failures and our sins if we are unwilling to forgive others for those same things. In fact, to drive home this point, Jesus told a powerful story just a few chapters later in this gospel, over in chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel. So turn over to Matthew 18, just a few pages to the right. And notice, beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? This was actually quite a generous concession by Peter. The religious leaders of the day wrongly appealed to some verses in the book of Amos to teach that since God had forgiven the enemies of Israel only three times, it was unnecessary to grant forgiveness more than three times. That's what they taught. That's what the rabbis taught. So in essence, what Peter did here in his question was to double the number and then to add one for good measure. He may have thought that his suggestion was going way above and beyond. Lord, how often should my brother sin? Seven times? That's over twice as many as what our rabbis teach. Seven times? If that's what Peter was thinking, he would have been shocked at what Jesus had to say. Because in verse 22, Jesus answered and said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
If you were to transfer that statement over into today's language and today's economy, it would be similar to saying $900 billion. In other words, it was an incomprehensible amount of money. The talent was the largest denomination of currency at that time. It would be parallel to our our largest bill, and I don't even know what that is. Whatever it is, it would be similar to a talent in that culture. And then the phrase 10,000 was often used in Jewish culture to indicate an almost infinite number. It didn't mean only 10,000. It was just a way of saying, like how we often use the word, you know, I've told you a million times. Well, we don't mean that in a literal way. We just mean over and over again. So you put that together. When you put the two phrases together, 10,000 talents, it's simply a way to describe an insurmountable amount of debt, an incomprehensible amount of debt. Verse 25 So this man is in debt in an impossible way. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Now, this is amazing. The king didn't reduce the debt or cut it in half or stop the interest from accruing or give the guy a bunch of extra years to pay it back. He just forgave him all the debt. Why? The text says because he had compassion on him. Think about this. The king had compassion on this man who had cheated him out of basically billions of dollars. The king knew that this man would never be able to live up to his promise to pay it back. He knew that this statement was in a sense an empty claim, an utter impossibility, but he still had compassion on him. Are you able to do that? Are you able to have compassion on people who have wronged you severely and hurt you deeply? Are you able to have compassion on them even when you know, you know they could never make up for what they have done? The king, the master, had compassion on this one who deserved no compassion. He let go of the offense with no strings attached. That is remarkable. Of course, you probably already know the parallels of this story and where Jesus is going and who represents whom and all of that. The king in this story is obviously God the Father, and this first servant is you. If you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's you. The the first servant in this story clearly represents those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. We owed God an unfathomable debt because of our sin. It was something that we could never pay back. It was something we, we could never make up for. Yet God completely forgave us everything in Christ. That's the picture thus far in the story. But Jesus isn't done. Verse 28. But that servant went out 
and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. By the way, this was not an insignificant amount of money because it amounted to about three entire months of wages, a fourth of a year of wages. So we don't want to assume that Jesus was saying that this was a trivial offense. It wasn't. And that's crucial to keep in mind because we don't want to minimize what Jesus is saying here by assuming that he is implying that other people's offenses against us, other people's sins against us are somehow inconsequential. They are not. They're not insignificant. Sometimes the offenses against us, as represented by the dead in this story, are are substantial. Jesus doesn't trivialize them by saying that this fellow servant only owed $4 or something like that. No. The debt was large. But in comparison to what the first servant owed to the king, it was a pittance. One of the points that Jesus is trying to get us to see here is that our offenses against God are so much greater than anything anyone has ever done to us. You see, we don't believe that naturally. In fact, you may not believe that right now as I'm saying these things. That's because we grossly underestimate how much we have sinned against God's goodness and how greatly we have sinned against His love and how grievously we have offended His holiness And how much our sin has put us in debt to him. We don't think we're that bad. That's our problem. We don't think we're that bad. Yet, we think that what others have done to us is awful. Now, it may be something that is extremely serious. It may be something that is terrible. And Jesus doesn't minimize that. But he wants us to get the perspective that the gravity of our sin against God goes infinitely beyond that. You see, beloved, that perspective is very healthy for us. It's very healthy for us to have the right perspective of how grievous our sin against God has been. Verse 29, Jesus continues the story. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. The man was asking for mercy, and he was asking for less mercy than had been given to this man who was now demanding payment. And in verse 30, Jesus says, He would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. The, the one who was shown incomprehensible mercy showed no mercy. The one who was extended undeserved compassion showed no compassion. What a blatant contradiction. Beloved, this is a picture of what we do when we refuse to forgive others. We take God's abundant mercy and God's abundant forgiveness, yet we withhold it from others. We we receive forgiveness for what we could never pay back, but we refuse to grant forgiveness for things that, although hurtful, pale in comparison to our grievances against God. 
It is an utterly contradictory action when we do that. And it is grievous to the core. So Jesus said in verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So, and here's the punchline. Here's the application that Jesus gives. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. What is Jesus saying here? He is showing the utter contradiction it is for someone who has been given forgiveness from God to turn around and refuse to forgive others. The person who does that will be severely chastened by the Lord to bring about a change of heart. Notice, please, that this man was not delivered to the executioners. He was delivered to the torturers to bring about a change of heart. What a serious thing it is to the Lord if we withhold the mercy of forgiveness from others when God has so freely extended to us the mercy of forgiveness. That's why Jesus instructed us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now what kind of forgiveness was Jesus referring to when he said that? And what is he talking about here in verse 35 about not forgiving Let me begin with a negative. Jesus was not referring, please hear this, he was not referring to the positional forgiveness that is ours in Christ, but rather to the kind of forgiveness that restores the fellowship that we break when we sin. You see, when we repent of our sin and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, all our sins are forgiven in a positional sense. Colossians 2.13 says, He has forgiven you all trespasses. As believers in Jesus Christ, all our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. We are completely forgiven positionally, but that doesn't mean we're perfect. As we walk through life, we sometimes yield to sin and commit sin and fall into sin. That sin is covered by the blood of Christ at salvation, but when we sin, we have injured our fellowship with the Lord. Thus, we need to ask for forgiveness. And when we do ask for forgiveness, please hear this. Please understand, we are not asking for forgiveness in the sense that we are asking to be given salvation again. No, we are asking the Lord to restore the injured fellowship. Jesus illustrated this distinction In John 13, let's turn there together as we begin to wind down this morning. Turn from the first gospel, Matthew, to the fourth gospel, John chapter 13. Jesus used a powerful illustration to teach this truth to his disciples. And it was obviously a lesson that they never forgot. Because the Apostle John, who was there on this occasion, used this in his own letter called 1 John in one of the most famous verses in the Bible, 1 John 1.9. So notice what happened here in John 13. 
Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, during, this is during the Passover meal, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, why was Jesus doing this? Well, one reason, they were probably sitting around or reclining with dirty feet. None of them had the humility to watch the other person's feet, so they're doing that. But there was a spiritual lesson that Jesus clearly wanted to leave with them. Verse 6, so he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And then Simon Peter, in his typical fashion, said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. That is okay. If it's going to be that way, give me a bath. And Jesus said to him, listen to this. This is really powerful. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. What is Jesus saying here? He was saying to Peter basically this. Peter, once you've had a bath, and he's talking spiritually here. Once you've had a bath, you're completely clean. You don't need another bath. You never need to get re-saved, re-washed in that sense. You don't need another bath, but you do need to wash your feet if you've stepped outside. This was an illustration of the way our relationship with the Lord works. Once we have been saved and washed and bathed in Christ, we don't ever need to get re-saved and re-washed and re-bathed when we fall into sin. But we do need to have our feet washed when we get them dirty. As Christians who fall into sin, we don't confess our sins to be given salvation again. We don't confess our sins to get resaved. We confess our sins to get our feet washed and to restore the injured fellowship with the Lord. And that is why John, who was sitting there on this night and watched this happen and heard what the Lord said, would later write, 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we confess our sins to have them forgiven in this sense in the sense that they are a barrier in our communion and fellowship with the Lord. But we don't confess them to get re-saved. And that's what Jesus was referring to when he said we should pray, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And that's what Jesus was talking about in our text in Mark eleven twenty five, 25 when he said, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. So let me ask you a question this morning. In light of what we have seen, do you forgive? Or do you hold on to things that have hurt you? things that have grieved you, things that have offended you? Do you let them go or do you hold on to them? Do you nurse them, coddle them, think about them, ruminate on them so that they begin to fester into bitterness and anger and wrath? 
Or do you forgive and let go? I hope we can all see how serious this is to the Lord and how important it is in our lives. And one other question, a very important question. Have you received the forgiveness of God that is only found in Christ? Have you been forgiven by God through faith in Jesus Christ? Let's bow together as we close this morning. Father, we see from your word this morning how important forgiveness is. How important it is, first and foremost, that we have experienced your forgiveness. The forgiveness that you offer us in Jesus Christ. When you say, whosoever will, let him come. Thank you, Father, for that gracious offer. That forgiveness is available. Forgiveness is offered in Christ. And so, Father, we want to pray for anyone here with us this morning who has never experienced that forgiveness, whose sins still cling to him or her because they've refused your forgiveness. May your Holy Spirit draw that man, that woman, that young person, whoever it is, to see his or her need for forgiveness. And may he or she turn to Jesus Christ in simple, humble, childlike faith to receive his forgiveness. And Father, those of us who have received that abundant, incomprehensible forgiveness, may we be reminded, as we've seen from your word this morning, how important it is for us then, in turn, to grant forgiveness to others. Certainly to grant forgiveness to those who confess and repent and and seek our, our forgiveness, but there's almost a sense in which that is easier than granting forgiveness when the, the other person won't even acknowledge his wrong, won't even acknowledge his sin against us. May we, as Jesus said in Mark 11, when we stand praying or kneel or sit or however we pray, forgive, let go, leave that up to you instead of holding it and feeding it. Father, teach us to be forgive us. Enable us to be forgivers because we confess that sometimes our hurts, our hurts are very, very difficult for us to overcome, to grant forgiveness. So we call on you, asking you for that strength and that grace, just as you have granted us such marvelous forgiveness. We pray these things in the precious and matchless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.